Welcome to Writer's Voices with Monica and Caroline. I'm your host, Monica Hadley, and with me once again is my mother and co-host, Caroline Kilborn. Good morning, everyone. I hope you're all having a good day so far. (laughs) Oh, Mom, who are we talking to today? Today we're talking to uh, Lydia Kang, and this is a a page-turner for sure. The book is The Half-Life of Ruby Fielding, and it's a... Historical, novel, history, spy. Uh, it's really <laughs> so it's it really is. it's a World War II historical novel, but a little different than most of the World War II novels that we've that we've had on Writers' That's Voices, right. isn't it? And we've had quite a few. Yes, uh, lately, yeah. haven't we? Yeah, but yeah. This one is. Well, let me tell you something about the author. Um, she is an author and internal medicine physician a graduate of Columbia University and New York University School of Medicine. She has completed her training at Bellevue Hospital in New York City. She lives with her family in the Midwest. So we're very happy to have her on our program. Welcome to Writer's Voices, Lydia. Thank you guys so much for having me. It's good to be here today. And where in the Midwest are you? I am in Omaha, Nebraska. Oh, not very far from Iowa at all. (laughs) <laughs> Not right. at all. Just a stone's throw. A couple yes, of hours. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yep. So Bellevue, isn't that like what we're all that they sent all the crazy people back in the day? And or maybe I shouldn't say that, <laughs> use that word. I'm not sure. But, I mean, it has well, quite yeah. a reputation, right? It does. It does. And absolutely. So back in the day, that was sort of like, you know, the threat, right? If you were like, acting really not normal or misbehaving. They'd be like, we'll send you to Bellevue. It was like this terrible threat because Bellevue was very well known as a psychiatric hospital. And it still is today. Um, They have a very significant population of patients that are taken care of for mental health reasons. They have inpatient mental health facilities, but it's actually probably more well known as just um, a general hospital. You know, they do cardiac surgery and they take care of people who get sick. They have a world-class trauma center and emergency room and they even take care of uh, prisoner patients on one of the top floors of the hospital. So I I was there for many years during my training. Wow. And I'm assuming that sort of the, um, I don't know, there used to be the kind of one flew over the cuckoo's nest. fear about institutions like that, but that's not what it is. Yeah. (laughs) No, I mean, today, everything is so different today, you know, but, you know, when we're talking about a hundred years ago or so, um, you know, mental health was just not taken care of very well. And a lot of times, you know, patients were misunderstood and they were taken care of and not really the most humane ways. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I, I recognize that Bellevue has quite a storied history um, but it's done some fantastic things um, over the course of its history with helping people in the community. And because I did my training and I, my first job there as a doctor, um, you know, I tip my hat to Bellevue often in my books because um, the four historical novels that I have written have all taken place in New York City. And so Bellevue has sort of shown up in one way or the other in almost every single book. That's mm. so interesting. Yeah. So. I didn't realize, with The Half-Life of Ruby Fielding, I didn't realize until I read your author's note at the end that this is kind of a continuation of an earlier book, which means you don't have to go read the earlier books first to to really get, you know, everything out of this book, but it might be fun to. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah, I I kind of put Easter eggs in all of my in all of my books, and so like as I said before, <laughs> they all four take place in um, in New York City. They are all historical, and um, so the books span. Let's see, The Impossible Girl takes place in 1850. Um, Opium and Absinthe takes place in 1899. A Beautiful Poison takes place in 1918. And then now we have the half-life of Ruby Fielding that takes place in 1942. And what I did was there are members of this one family, and they are all women, 
um, that are featured in every single book. And um, I wanted that um, I wanted that storyline, uh, that sort of family history to evolve as the books went on. And I didn't write them in that order. I actually wrote A Beautiful Poison first, so that was 1918. And then I wrote The Impossible Girl, so I went like 70 years in the past down to 1850. And... Um, and then, but if you, if you read, let's see, if you read A Beautiful Poison, which is the 1918 one, and then you read The Half-Life of Ruby Fielding, you will for sure recognize characters that are hugely featured in one of the main characters and uh, hugely featured in A Beautiful Poison um, shows up as a character in The Half-Life of Ruby Fielding. And you actually get to see her future, which is really fascinating because, you know, at the end of a book, people are always like, oh, I wonder how it turned out. And you know, did this person get married and did they have a good marriage? And what, you know, what was she like later? And I would get notes from readers saying like, oh, I hope you do a spinoff with her. You know, I hope you, I hope you do more books with her and, you know, she figures some more stuff out. And so it's sort of like, you know, it's um, a little, a bit of a nod to, you know, some of the characters, which were for my very, very first historical novel that I got to put back into the Half-Life of Ruby Fielding. And it was really a joy to see them again and to write about them and sort of give them a little hug and be like, so this is what you're doing now. Okay, cool. <laughs> well, I'm really curious if when, so you said you wrote A Beautiful Poison first. Did mm-hmm. you know when you were writing that, that there would be more to the story? I mean, did you set out like, I'm going to stay with this family through centuries? No, I didn't. I didn't. I I set out. It's funny because I had my, the first two books that I ever, ever wrote that were published was Control and Catalyst. And they were young adult science fiction novels. They took place like many, many years in the future. And um, it was originally meant to be a trilogy. I ended up turning it into a duology. And it was very difficult to write the second book because I had to take into account all these rules and all this world building that I put into place for the first book. And I had to stick with that to make the second book work. And it was really, it's really, mm-hmm. um, uh, just a tangled web and it's very, very challenging. And so after that, I was like, that's it. I am only writing standalone books for now. <laughs> I'm not doing any, like, I don't want to do any series. I don't want to do any like duologies or trilogies. And so when I wrote a beautiful poison, um, which was my next one, it was not young adult, but it turned out to be adult. I thought it was young adult. I was wrong. But, um, <laughs> which is a whole other story. But anyway, yes. <laughs> um, so when I wrote it, yeah. So when I wrote A Beautiful Poison, I was like, I'm going to write a standalone book, and you can pick this book up and read it um, cover to cover, and not have to feel like you have to keep reading somewhere else. Like you're done. And um, I made it very a conscious decision that when I wrote every other historical novel, you could pick them up. And you would never have to read anything else in that I wrote and feel like you were done with the book and you had this sort of, you know, hopefully satisfying ending. But I, I like to put, like I said, I like to put Easter eggs in my novels and um, there are these little tidbits of history or little tidbits that link the books together. And so um, uh, many people, so in The Impossible Girl, which takes place in 1850, um, Coralie is the main character of the book and she is, um, half Chinese. And so there are references to her. She's a, she's a grave robber in the book. So she's very, like, <laughs> no. not very glamorous, um, no. not terribly, you know, people, slightly shameful, you know, pack history, right? But she's, she's in this family, right? So obviously there's no mention of her in A Beautiful Poison because that was the first book I wrote. But in Opium and Absence and in The Half-Life of Ruby Fielding, they make note of her. They're just like, I hear you have this, there's like a rumor that there's someone in your family that's like, that was like a woman grave robber. And like, <laughs> she might have been, she might have been like, you might have Chinese blood. And, and I loved putting those little, like, um, those little bits in there. And interestingly, you know, it's always other people that are sort of flabbergasted by this, right? The people who are in the family themselves are never shocked or ashamed of it they're just like yeah so (laughs) um because I didn't want people to be ashamed of the fact that you had um you know uh multicultural blood in your in your line or that you know people had gone through really fascinating things in the past but these women in these books are doing 
what are considered to be really socially unacceptable things, you know, um, in opium and absence, um, you know, the, the main character there, she becomes, she's like, she's doing some sort of like journalistic stuff in the book. And that also is like, just not, not socially acceptable. So (laughs) they sort of, they, they sort of talk a little bit about that too. So, you know, the half-life of Ruby Fielding, I really got to reflect on all these different characters that I had written throughout the last several years and um, just mention them a little bit and sort of wink, wink at the, at my readers who have read the other books and been like, yep, I'm, I'm talking about these guys. Don't forget about them. They're still, they're still in the memories of this, of this family. So. And will you continue with, with this family? I don't know. I don't know. (laughs) I, I, uh, you know, it's interesting. Like there's, I could go farther. I, I left, a bit of an opening at the end of Ruby so that if there was to be a follow-up story, I could do one. So I sort of left myself an open door there, mm-hmm. but I don't know if I'm going to do it. I haven't, I'm not hundred percent sure yet. And, um, would it be Holly that also, you would follow? Um, I'm not going to say because oh. that would be giving away a spoiler. Okay. 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 <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to say who, who lives and dies at the end okay, of the book. Okay. Who knows? Yeah. But, yeah. Um, <laughs> But there's, but there's an opening for that, like, just in case, like if I, I, historical fiction, um, as you can imagine, is really, um, really challenging to write. There's, there's so much work you have to put in to getting to know a time period where, be it just like, you know, what the place looks like and the language and what was happening at the time and, you know, the political climate and the social climate and, there's just so many things that you have to be on top of it. It affects every single sentence that you write. And it's, it's exhausting to be quite frank. (laughs) And so there's a little, there's a little part of me that's like, I would like to not do historical fiction for my next one, just for a change. But of course, like I have an idea for another historical fiction. I don't know. (laughs) So we'll see. We'll see. I don't know. Okay. So (laughs) historical fiction is exhausting because you have to get all the details right. And futuristic is exhausting because you have to, you have to hold to the to the worlds that you build and follow the rules. So what about contemporary fiction? Mm -hmm. Have you written any contemporary fiction? Um, I have written, only one contemporary fiction and it's not even like pure contemporary fiction because it's it has a a huge paranormal um bent to it but i would say um the the november girl is my only true like contemporary novel so um that takes place in current times and it is a young adult book and uh, it features a young man he's 17 who's escaping a very violent family and he's he hides out on Isle Royal, which is um, this very secluded island on Lake Superior uh, for the winter because it closes down over the winter. So he hides out so that when the when he gets off the island in the spring, after he's been hiding, he will be 18 and he will be an adult and he will be free. Um, so from that perspective, I really had to um, I had to get to know the island really well. I had to get to know what it was like to survive on an island and what it was like to, you know, just be a teenager um, in this time period. And um, the other part of the book, which is the paranormal part, is that there's a a girl on the island who's a teenager and she is half human and half kind of nature. And she has a very, she's rather bloodthirsty. Like every November she sinks ships on Lake Superior and she's on the island alone because her father, her human father knows you know, um, I need to get away from her because she's very dangerous in November. And so, of course, she's on this island thinking she's by herself. Yes. Right. Um, so basically, both end up on the island and they start to fall for each other. But it's not a very ter- really good pairing because he's running <laughs> away from violence and she is a very violent person. And, um, but, <laughs> oh, yeah, that's here. It's uh, a complicated, shall we say. <laughs> yeah. I would. Well, your, yes. your your novels sound like they're all complicated, which is why they're page turners. I mean, you know, that's, that's oh yeah, that's that's part of the I fun. Th- I know, and it's it's like it's one of those things that you have to do when you're when you're writing a book is you have to make things you have to make things difficult for your your characters. They can't be easy because if they were easy, you wouldn't be very excited to read it because you know yeah. nothing would be happening. So you know, I do want to 
ask you again, or get back into the topic that we kind of um, slightly mentioned about young adult versus adult fiction. Where is the dividing line? How do you know which one you're writing? Oh, that's a good question. Um, Because in my mind, it used to be, you know, young adult fiction, the characters are all under 18. um, And they're dealing with kid issues. And adult fiction, they're over 18 and they're dealing with adult issues. But the truth is, is that there is a huge amount of crossover with the the problems that um, adults and and teens have to deal with. You know, um, they all oftentimes have to deal with things like trauma or abuse, or depression, mental health issues, violence. Um, you know, obviously kids are in school, and so that's something that, you know, adults may not have to deal with. But the social pressures of school, falling in love, finding somebody who who really understands you, um, dealing with your parents, that never goes away, right? Um, no yeah. matter how old you are, if you don't get along with your parents, that is the reason why many, many adult novels are written is just this, this really, this conflict, this generational conflict. And so from that perspective, that doesn't really separate what um, happens between adult books and, and young adult books. Like I've had people say, oh, it must be so nice to write young adult books because you just don't have to deal with like really big issues. And I, and I think, and I think that's a, a real misunderstanding that teen books are light, fluffy rom-coms mm-hmm. all the time, every time. And <laughs> even, you know, they're, they're, and that's not the case. And even the, you know, romantic comedies in YA that I do read um, they have like generational conflict. They have racism. They have all sorts of different things that people have to deal with. So I think that's a, a real oversimplification and, and of what um, teen books are. And, and granted, if you look at the demographic of who reads them, they are not all children. They a good anywhere from a quarter to 50% of readers of young adult are adults because they enjoy the books because they're well-written. They're really good stories. So, um, and it flips both ways. You've got lots of teenagers um, and kids in middle school who read adult books. You know, um, if you look at, you know, the curriculum of a typical high school students, you know, those are not children's books. You know, right. they're reading The Catcher in the Rye. They're reading, you know, um, I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings. These are not technically children's books. These are mm-hmm. for adults, too. So so I think what it comes down to for me when, when I decided, you know, what book is this? Is this young adult or is this not? Um, sometimes it is as simple as the demographic of the main character. Um, if I decide to write a, a, a story about a kid in high school who's dealing with um, a major conflict that has to do with the prom, it makes sense for me to make it more for a readership for young kids. Um, if I, but when I wrote A Beautiful Poison, all the characters were 17 and 18 and 19. So they're right on the cusp of adulthood. And I wrote it as a YA book. And when I gave it to my editor at Penguin, she was like, Lydia, this is not YA. This is an adult novel. And I was like, it is? I had no idea. What, what do you mean? And she, <laughs> and she was like, the, she was like, first of all, one of them is worried about getting drafted for the war, World War I. One of them is working in a factory. One of them is getting married. She's like, these are not things that typical teens have to deal with. And she said, on top of that, your voice, the voice of the prose, she's like, is adult. And that's, I think that's probably one of the hardest things to try to, to translate to and explain to somebody about why something is ultimately for, um, that it, something is ultimately young adult versus adult. It, I think it comes down to the voice. And um, it's hard to explain. You just sort of know it when you pick it up and you start reading and you're like, yes, this is, this is an adult book versus it is, it is not. Um, but like I said, that being said, it doesn't really necessarily mean that it must be read by a certain demographic and there's so much crossover no matter what happens or how things get written. And in some ways it almost seems like young adult books, a, a lot of adults read YA books, um, yes. know, newly published YA books. And it's, it seems like the biggest sellers of recent years tend to be YA books, you know, or of course the Harry Potter books, the, um, the, um, I'm trying to think of the one that, that, uh, they made the movie about with the, uh, um, Oh, Hunger Games. Hunger Games. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Those yeah. kind of things. I mean, <laughs> so absolutely. it's not 
it's it's certainly not um, a bad place to be from a publishing perspective. No, not not at all. And I think publishers are very smart to recognize that these books are read by a huge wide readership, um, and they and they don't downplay um, how good these books are. You know, they don't um, they don't um, sort of poo-poo them as like you know these, this is not this is not literature. Um, this is not high quality. And, and I think the readership, I, I think that what ultimately matters is that if you can write a good story and it gets into the hands of readers, you've done a great job and it, it doesn't, and we shouldn't, you know, um, you know, discount the fact that literature is literature and the more people read the better. And so right. if it so happens that it's young adults and the, this is a, you know, this is a book or a series that's just getting, that's just sparking so much interest in a large readership that's that's better because we all get to experience other lives through books and I think that's that's ultimately you know really good for everybody. You're listening to Writers Voices with Monica and Caroline and our guest today is Lydia Kang, author of The Half Life of Ruby Fielding. Let's talk about the title of that book. It has a couple of meanings. <laughs> it does. It does. You know what's funny? Um, so one of the characters, um, Will Scripps, is in in the book. He is working kind of secretly for the Manhattan Project. So um, his work directly indir- or indirectly uh, impacts um, the development of the first atom bomb, and ultimately what changes the tide as far as World War II is concerned. And so I, I had to sort of delve into um, atomic physics in a way that I had never done before. Um, I, I love science, I'm, I'm a, but I'm, I'm more of a chemistry biology lover, um, botany and pharmacology and medicine and all that kind of stuff. Physics is not my, is not my strong point at all. So I had to do a, a bit of study just to make sure I got a lot of the details right in this book. Um, but I, I love the concept of the half-life. You know, the half-life is the, this um, this period of time by which, you know, an atom or a chemical um, disintegrates. And um, and I also love the idea of half-life as also meaning that somebody has more than one life or someone has a hidden life or there is um, sort of more going on than meets the eye. And so it, it made sense to use that word for the title and of course, Ruby Fielding is um, is one of the main characters of the book. And in the beginning of the book, um, that is not her name. You know, she's going by um, a, a secret name, and uh, we find out soon enough that that is that Ruby Fielding is her name. And I and I, I get that. Like when I wrote the the title, I was like, you know what? I'm giving away a huge spoiler <laughs> by having the, by having the book be called Ruby Fielding. Um, but I was okay with it, and I, I really like the play of um, the um, atomic physics Manhattan Project feeling of it, that sense of, you know, um, impending importance and, and doom and this, this seismic change in the world that is about to happen, and mm-hmm. also with regards to this one woman and how she is seismically going to change everything that is happening in Will and Maggie's life. Well, what, what I liked about it especially was you just never knew who was what and who was doing what and everything until the very end. You know, it was just yeah. really interesting. It I, is. Yeah, it that's, is. And that's really hard to do because when I'm writing it, I'm like, everybody's going to see right through this. Like, they're just, here's a red herring. Everybody's going to say like, oh, well, Lydia, that's a red herring. I don't believe what you're writing. <laughs> so you, you never truly know if you're going to pull it off until it's out in the world and people are like, okay, I didn't see that coming. And that is like the best, the best praise you can ever get if you're writing a mystery or suspense novel or a thriller mm-hmm. is people being yeah. like, I can guess the end of books all the time. And I didn't guess this one. I'm always like, yay. <laughs> <laughs> did no, you, you won't guess this one. <laughs> did you know how it was going to end when you started? Yes. I did. I did. It is, um, there are some people who write books and they don't know how it's going to end, but I can't, I can't do that. I have to, um, I have to have charted my path before I start writing. So I plot my books out 
And um, even when I just come up with an idea for a book, um, oftentimes I just have these random ideas. I don't have a plot at all. I just have, like when I was going to write Ruby, I I was like, all right, I would love to have somebody who's working on the Manhattan Project. I would love to have a character who is a Columbia football player, um, but who's actually really smart. And there's, I, I write something in the author's note about that. Um, I was like, I would love to write somebody who's working in um, the Brooklyn Navy Yard as a welder, because just like, you know, all those posters, you know, the women working posters. Mm-hmm. And I thought, and I also just love the idea of somebody planting a poison garden. I've been sort of fascinated by the concept <laughs> of the poison poison garden. I, I wrote it in a um, short story that got published and um, and I thought, all right, so I have all these ideas. And then I was like, but I have no plot. Like, I have no idea. like how are these characters going to get together and who's going to like, you know, what's going to happen at the end. And so, and that's how I, a beautiful poison also started is that I had the characters, but I had no plot. And so the beginning of a beautiful poison, I was like, well, what am I going to do with these characters? Like what's going to happen to them? What's going to bring them together? What's going to what's going to sort of light up that first chapter that makes you realize like, okay, I need to keep reading. And I just, just being silly me, I was just like, well, I'll just kill somebody on the first. (laughs) 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 And so, um, and so I did. So in a beautiful poison on the first page, it starts off with the death of um, a guest at this engagement party. And as soon as I wrote that, I was like, you know what, if I, if I write this, I'm like, I will be committing myself to writing a murder mystery. And I'm like, I've never written a murder mystery before. Um, I don't know what I'm doing. And, uh, but that's what I did. I was like, I'm going to kill somebody. And then ultimately this book is going to be about finding out who killed the character on the first page. Who done it. <laughs> so exactly the who done it. Right. And, um, and so when I came to Ruby Fielding, I was like, should I kill somebody on the first page? Cause that worked for my other book. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, let's do something similar. Let's have like a body on the first page or like, you know, in the first chapter of us, let's not have her be dead. Let's have her eventually wake up and let's have her insinuate herself into the lives of these two characters and turn it into this really complicated love triangle, which between two women and a man nowadays you're sort of like okay i can see that happening right um mm-hmm. in 1942 you're probably like oh ooh, are we are we gonna do that are we is that <laughs> like how how is that okay you know <laughs> and so you have this whole other level of you know so-called impropriety and you know um social taboos and stuff like that that got put into that because this is a love triangle between two women and a man um, and so I was like, all right, I am up for this. Let's make this complicated. <laughs> let's, <laughs> let's, let's start it. Let's do it. Um, and interestingly, you know, um, in a beautiful poison, one of the main characters, Aline, she and her, her best friend, um, Birdie are really, really close. And there's this one moment in the book where they're sort of looking at each other and there's sexual tension. Um, I think it happens twice in the book where there's some sexual tension between these two female friends and nothing comes of it. Right. Um, but there is a familial relationship between one of those characters and Ruby. And so I thought it would make sense for Ruby to have, um, that sort of inclination for um, being bisexual. And, um, and I was like, you know, this is naturally what somebody would do. And she doesn't feel confined by society like other people do. And we'll, we'll see what happens. Let's just, um, let's just cause some trouble. (laughs) She's she's a very interesting character. Is there anyone like historically that any of these characters were kind of modeled after? Oh, that's a good question. Um, let me see. Let me think. Um, well, Will, in yes, some sense. I, I yes. I would say Will Will reminds me of, in the Anne Rice novels, um, the her, her, her witchy books, um, the, the ones, um, I'm totally blanking on the names of them, but there are a whole <laughs> series of them. You know, Lasher was one of them, and The Witching Hour, I think, was the first book. And there was a character in, I think, The Witching Hour, 
who was this this guy who was like a really big muscular guy who was also I can't remember what job he had but he was in highly I think maybe he was a maybe he was like an architect or something but he was highly highly intelligent and there was this really interesting um experience that he had being that he would like walk into a room and people would look at him and they'd be like, Oh, he's a meathead. He's dumb, you know, cause he's big and muscular, but he was really, really smart. And I, I love that juxtaposition. I love it when people make judgments on what someone looks like and they are completely shocked by what comes out of that person's mouth. And so will that, that was a little bit of a reference, I think, to that character um, from Anne Rice, because will is very similar to that. Will's a football player. He is, he is big and hulking and huge and people walk down the street and people sort of like get out of the way, you know, (laughs) like women look at him with a a touch of fear in their eyes, that sort of a thing. And, and, um, and I, but he's also, you know, he's in school for, to become a physicist. Like he's, he's really, really smart and he's not just book smart. He is socially smart. Like he, he understands that there is a game being played with regards to the unfolding of the Manhattan Project and who's in charge of what and what do they need and how do we get there and where is his ability to rise in the ranks so that he is, he says in the book at one point in time, and I'm, I'm going to quote myself incorrectly, but he was like, he doesn't want to be the person, you know, running the orders. He wants to be the person giving the orders. And this is where his, you know, um, you know, he, this is where his goals are. And he realizes that, that there's a game to be played and he's got to, he's got to do it wisely. And so I really did enjoy um, his character very, very much. And I also very much liked having Ruby play off of him because he's a guy who's sort of like, I know I'm a smart person and I'm smarter than almost everybody in the room that I walk into. And Ruby totally throws him off, like constantly throws him off. Actually, the women in the novel are constantly throwing Will off because he's always sort of like, oh my God, these women are going to be the death of me because just when he feels like he's got a handle on how he's going to do something and how something's going to go, they'll say something and he'd be like, he'll be like, what the heck is going on? I don't understand. And I love that. I love constantly throwing him off. I thought I had a great deal of fun sort of playing with Will that way. Um, You know, as far as the other characters, uh, there aren't, there isn't anybody in particular, I think, who they were directly sort of inspired by, um, you know, Maggie is just timid and, and damaged and she is mentally so fragile. Um, and I, I wanted her to feel like she was good at something. And so we, we actually changed her character in a little bit. And originally I had her not being so good at being a welder when she was at the Brooklyn Navy yard, but we decided we were going to make her really good at it and say like, what do you do when you have this like fragile character who fails at everything and you make them good at something like, how does that change them? Mm. And so we got to explore that a little bit because she really starts to get a little bit of pride of like, Oh my God, I'm actually good at something for the first time in my life. And, um, Ruby's a little bit more of an enigma. Like you kind of, a lot of the book is not, you very, very rarely get to see her perspective in the book. Um, The book mostly switches between Will and Maggie's point of view and only Mm -hmm. a little bit do you get um, Ruby's point of view because I didn't want to give away what was really going on in her head. And I think that complexity of who she is, she's a highly intelligent woman. She's extremely beautiful and she knows it and she knows how to use that beauty as power. Um, And she's very wealthy and she's very uh, privileged. And so she has that power behind her as well. And so she, she comes from a place of invincibility. Her parents were loved her so much. And so she's, she's an invincible woman. She is like what you do when you have somebody who's got everything. They've had privilege, they've had money, they've had education, they've had love, you know, and you see that in her. She is not afraid. She is very proud and she is very well aware of what she is good at, you know, and that is a fantastic thing to see on the page in the 1940s. So I, I, she was also just so much fun to write about. Okay. Well. What about Mrs. Rivers? Was there anyone like her on the Manhattan Project? Uh, she is false. Okay. <laughs> she's, she's a, Darn. She's a I really one, wanted her to be. She's a, I know. She's a 100% fictional character. Um, and I, and I wrote her in, in, in a, such a way that if she did exist in the Manhattan project, you would never know. Right. She right, is a complete right. behind the scenes shadow figure who pulled strings, but you never knew that she did. Um, interestingly, no, though, her name comes from a, a real human person. Um, I did, uh, 
um, the um, uh, there the Fontenelle Forest, which is this um, beautiful forest and um, in Bellevue, Nebraska, not Bellevue Hospital in New York City, but Bellevue, Nebraska. It's a gorgeous forest, and um, they have a lot of educational stuff like that. They did this um, gala um, a couple years ago, and they asked if I would donate something for the gala, and I, what I ended up donating was the, the name of a character in a book. And so for <laughs> um, a good amount of money, um, somebody purchased um, to donate to the Fontenelle Forest um, their ability to name a character in one of my books. And so um, this mm. uh, family um, – chose this and they chose their daughter and so Hannah Rivers is actually a real human who, <laughs> who whose name ended up in the book and that is who Mrs. Rivers is named after. Oh, that's so cool. That is. You're listening to Writer's Voices with Monica and Caroline and our guest today is Lydia Kang, author of The Half-Life of Ruby Fielding. Before we run out of time, Lydia, could you read a little bit from the book? Oh, sure. I would love to. Let me, and I think what I'll do is um, I might write from the beginning because then you really sort of get a feel for how the story opens up a little bit. That's perfect. Um, okay. Here we go. Chapter one. They say that a nuclear chain reaction begins with one simple event the absorption of an extra nuclear particle before calamity inevitably destroys everything it touches. For William Scripps, the chain reaction started on a fall day when he arrived home from work, the day his world changed irrevocably. Later, he would say inevitably. It was October 20th, 1942. It had been a blisteringly long day of work, hauling 2,000 barrels of uranium onto a barge in the shadow of the Bayonne Bridge. After the Staten Island Ferry and the Brooklyn Trolley Ride, Will was finally nearly home. It had been back-breaking work, and he felt twice as old as his mere 25 years. He wanted beef and beer and a book. He would likely get only one. Beef was scarce, expensive, and would be rationed soon. Some meat-leggers would sell more than they should, but Will's sister would never submit to doing anything so hardly unpatriotic as buying from them. Beer was pricey. Whiskey, too. A third of the beer being brewed in the country was saved for servicemen, and as of January, whiskey distilleries were producing alcohol for industrial torpedo fuel. Will snorted. Nazis, ruining his dinner and his drink every damn night. Mm -hmm. Maggie would finish, be finishing up cooking whatever was cheapest from the grocer, along with a precious dessert, thanks to their sugar ration stamps. She would nervously ask about his day, Wince when he asked if he'd found a job yet. And later, after his classes at Brooklyn Bridge, he'd fall asleep on the sofa with a book on thermodynamics split open on his chest. Maggie would switch off the lights in their small house and graze them, and all would be quiet for a while. How's that? That's great. Thank you. That was Lydia Kang reading from The Half-Life of Ruby Fielding. I was really interested in how you got how you got so interested in poisonous plants and I, I know you worked them into the you know into the book and it was it was oh quite good but how did, how did you get that interest um what, I what, think I just, what sparked that I, I think I've always sort of been interested in the medicinal um aspect of plants um when I was when I was a, a kid and I would just walk around in my neighborhood, I was always keeping an eye out for things. Like I would see wild mint growing and I would be like, Oh, this is really exciting. And there would be like a wild apple tree growing in the yard, you know, like in the neighborhood somewhere, um, you know, somewhere else I would see something that looked like, you know, carrot and there'd be, you know, Queen Anne's lace everywhere. And I just, I would always make note of these, these different plants and trees around me and what they meant and were some of them edible and were some of them not um, as I got into college, I just got really interested in herbology and how different plants could be used for medicinal things. And that uh -huh. sort of wove its way into my life as a physician, because we have things like, you know, that technically grow in our garden, like, you know, foxglove is a, a typical one. It's this beautiful flower that lots of people have in their yard. And foxglove has a chemical in it that is still used as a heart medicine today. And so just that we're surrounded by all these things, you know, um, 
you know, yew, yew trees, which are these are yew shrubs, like they're these evergreens in people's front lawns all the time. We have them in our front lawns. Like there's a chemical in that that's used for chemotherapy. And the vinca is this beautiful ground cover that's around with these glossy leaves and purple flowers are so pretty. Um, my, I think my in-laws have it in their front lawn. And that is used in, as a chemotherapy for cancer treatment. So I, I'm always looking and seeing things and just fascinated by how plants feed us and they cure us. And they poison us, <laughs> depending on what they're doing. Yeah. It just, um, yeah. I just really love that relationship we have with that natural world. Well, that's that's very interesting. You know, I I never thought I never, I know there's some some plants that are poisonous to animals if they you know if they happen to ingest them. And I, I I'm sure they're poisonous to humans too. But you don't think about that too much, you know. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Eating, yeah. Eating. Yeah. Now the other the other question I have was. Um, in your author's notes at the end, you recommend books about New York City during World War II and things that never happened in the Midwest. I mean, I, I never realized that they had to have blackouts there and stuff, you know. Yes. I, and, I, you know, I, I was, didn't know I was, that either. Yeah. You know, I, I learned a lot of this myself. Like, you know, the idea that, like, um, the New York City would be so bright that you could see the shadow of ships floating, you know, going by on the Atlantic Ocean and because the the city was so bright you would see the shadow of the ships and so any U-boats that are out in the Atlantic Ocean just would easily be able to target them and I'm like oh my god that's so obviously a bad thing who knew but and that's why they would have these blackouts they would have these dim outs because it was really they were just ships were getting sunk all the time and I'm like I didn't know that I had no idea um and just so much of what it was like living in New York at the time is just so bizarre to us because we were like we just didn't have to worry like you and I like people who lived in the Midwest we wouldn't have to worry about German airplanes making it all the way into no, the Midwest no, bomb us I know, you know, and I know things like that it was just not even a, a, a concern but that's that's uh, New York City was you know it was techni- technically a big target in reality they didn't have <clears throat> any any aircraft that could fly across the Atlantic bomb and then fly all the way back. Like you would need an mm-hmm. enormous amount of fuel. So in reality, yeah. it, once they kind of realize they're like, okay, this isn't going to happen the same way it's happening in like London and, um, and the UK and stuff like that. But they didn't know that they didn't know what the Germans were up to. So it was a really big fear. Did they have, they didn't have aircraft carriers then where planes couldn't take off from boats. Probably not. I, I I don't think so. Yeah, I don't think that was not. had that capability. Um, so, um, but they were also just like you know the Germans were um, very very secretive about what they, what kind of technology they have, and so um, they just they people were like still afraid, you know. And also there was the concept of you had you know Nazi sympathizers who were stateside that might do some really terrible right. things, and so that was a really and that that actually you know people. There were, you know, German spies. There was like a really famous thing where um, a couple of um, Germans, uh, like some U-boats, dropped them off, and they, I think, they swam to shore, uh, like on the coast of Long Island, and they like they came ashore, and there were, you know, like they were in and around Manhattan, and they eventually got caught. But it was like, oh my God, they like got by, and whoa, like really scary (laughs) stuff. Yeah, yeah. And and there were um there were Nazi sympathizers and there were true spies here, you know, in the United States. And granted there were a lot of people who were German Americans who were called spies and absolutely were not and you know, um but it it did happen, you know. So uh yeah, just so much the whole the whole feel of fear and spies and all that kind of stuff, it was just just rife then. You know, even One, well, Go oh, ahead. Sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. Mom. What was that book? We what, what was that book we had about U-boats off the coast of of uh, down the southern part of the United States? Oh yeah, Florida. Wasn't there something a book or about Texas. that? Or Texas? I think was... it was in the Gulf of Mexico. Yeah, that was. Oh it. wow! Yeah. Wow! And I don't yeah. remember the title of the book now. It's been probably seven or eight years ago that we that we did that interview, but. Yeah, there was a lot going on that we didn't realize. But, you know, speaking of being like the Midwest feeling you didn't have to deal with those things, even later during the Cold War, I always figured if if the Soviet Union were going to attack the U.S., the one thing they wouldn't want to do is mess up 
the bread basket because that would be one of the things that they would want is our agriculture. And so, oh, that's interesting. yeah, mm. so they wouldn't be likely to drop atomic bombs in, in the Midwest, but I could have been wrong about that. That was just my own, my own yeah. conjecture. <laughs> Your own hope. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, probably it's funny because like, you know, after nine eleven, I moved out to Omaha and I remember thinking to myself, like, you know, New York City is such a huge target for terrorists because it's New York City and there are these tunnels and bridges and there's just so many means to hurt the city. And I thought, you know, surely, not that this was why we moved out, but I was sort of as an afterthought. I was like, well, surely I'll be really safe out here in the Midwest. And then <laughs> it didn't occur to me that, you know, we were like Omaha is right next next to Offutt Air Force Base. Mm. And like, this is like, this is the base where like the president comes if they're like in the air. And like, I think they, I think actually like um, President Bush like landed here for a little while, like after like right. when 9-11 happened. Right. Yeah. And, and I was I- like, oh, we're actually a huge target <laughs> because we have an Air Force base here. And I was like, okay, I didn't, I didn't really think that out clearly. Not that, again, not that we moved here for that reason, but I remember thinking that. And then, um, yeah, it's just kind of funny how, um, uh, you know, there's so many really important places all over the United States. That well, if that's you were true. An evil person you could target. So, <laughs> so mm-hmm. Lydia, I wanted to ask you about some of your other writing. You've also written some nonfiction books, which I find really fascinating. So there's yes, one yeah. titled, let me see, Patient Zero, A Curious History of the World's Worst Diseases. Mm-hmm. And the That's other right. one book, uh, is just came out in the fall, actually. Okay. Okay. And what kind of diseases are you writing about? So we are writing about things like smallpox and typhoid fever and um, Hansen's disease, which used to be called leprosy, and um, just all sorts of, you know, Ebola, COVID, all sorts of diseases. <laughs> oh. And so... Um, We wrote that book. We started writing that book prior to the pandemic. We didn't know the pandemic was going to happen. And, um, you know, we talk about outbreaks of all sorts of different diseases like HIV and the stories behind how some of these outbreaks happen and the origins of the diseases and things like that. Now, I see where you say that the HIV virus has been with us for at least a century. Yes. Isn't it shocking? We we tend to think it just popped out of nowhere in the 1980s. You know, when that big fear happened and everybody right. was like totally scared and um, it, it, it probably existed in the United States for at least a decade or so before that it was just around. And um, in other parts of the world, um, like, you know, parts of Africa and, and in Haiti and other places as well. Um, but we think that it most likely jumped from a chimpanzee to like a hunter or something like that um, in uh, like 1908. So probably wow. been around for some time. Yeah, it's it's a, it's really shocking when you when you sort of think about it that way because it sort of blows your mind as far as like when when things began. Um, like we don't really think about tuberculosis very much, not here in Omaha, but you know TB and consumption shows up in movies and you know books that we read all the time. You know people are dying of consumption, that sort of a thing, and. Um, and tuberculosis has probably been with humans since humans evolved. And that's also very shocking to find out. It's not just something that showed up in the 1800s or the 1700s and people were, you know, coughing blood into their little handkerchiefs and dying these um, very poetic deaths. It's, it's not, it's a very different story. Um, so, yeah, so we talk about all those different stories. And then um, we also have a, so these, these are co-written with a friend of mine, Nate Peterson. And so we also wrote a book in 2017 called um, Quackery, A Brief History of the Worst Ways to Cure Everything. And <laughs> and that is exactly what it is. It is like basically a compendium. It's a pretty humorous compendium of all these different treatments that people used to do for medical reasons that are just so bad. They're just terrible ideas like eating ground up mummies and oh (laughs) yes and like you know leeches and bloodletting for like a broken heart or you know when you're feeling really tired putting a scalding hot iron on your skin I mean they don't make any sense to us nowadays but they're 
this is what things were done before. And it's, and this, both of these books have lots of, you know, illustrations and old time pictures. And so it's not, they're all like, you know, pretty interesting reads um, with, you know, things to look at and, and bits of history in them. So, so yeah, so I write nonfiction as well. And um, a lot of that sort of ability, I think comes from my, um, my experience as a physician and, and a scientist and, and, um, all that kind of stuff. So it's been, and my love of history, honestly. Wow. I'm looking at this article that, um, eight medical treatments we now know to be poisonous. Oh, <laughs> like <yeah>. mercury. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. That was actually, mercury was the first chapter I wrote in Quackery. <laughs> and I, I love, Mercury, it has a very special place in my heart because like, as you guys probably remember too, like when you were a little kid and you got sick, you had like someone gave you a mercury thermometer to put in your mouth and you would watch that little silver liquid like rise up and sometimes the mercury broke and then you got to play with it. Yeah. Because I definitely did when I was a kid. Yep. (laughs) And so... Uh, and nobody, you know, young kids today are just like, you played with mercury? And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> Everybody played with, I don't know. Um, but uh, but it's it's fascinating because we now we're always like, oh, my God, like, you know, don't eat swordfish because it might have a lot of mercury in it. And we get all na- nervous about mercury, this and mercury, that. And back then people ate it on purpose. It was just unbelievable oh. <laughs> all the time. And they would get really sick from it, too, like really sick because it was totally – um, poisonous. Um, so yeah, that was a fun, fun chapter to read, but we had really a good time writing this book yeah. and it still is really popular today. People are always sort of commenting on it and I, I still do quite a bit of like, um, lecturing on the topic as well. So well, how did you get interested uh, it's kind of an evergreen topic? Yeah. How'd you get interested in the subject of quackery? It was actually, it was actually Nate's idea. So Nate, um, Nate's wife, um, April, um, Genevieve Tuholki. She is a young adult author and our books first came out around the same time in 2013. And so we were just hanging out together. We were friends and I was friends with Nate as well as an extension. And, you know, she was like, Hey, I think you guys should write like a, a really funny book on like some sort of weird weirdo medical history thing. And I was like, well, I don't know. I've never done that before, but I guess we'll see. And Nate was like, let's, let's write a book on quacks, like weird quack doctors and <laughs> quack medicine or whatever. And I, I was like, well, again, I've never done this before, but I suppose. And we looked into it and we realized that the kind of book that we would want to read, there wasn't one out there like it. Like there wasn't anything that was this funny and had really great pictures and was just like um, had the the breadth of information that we wanted to put in there. And so we decided we would try to write it, and we were we sold it to Workman Publishing, which is a fantastic publisher. We had a wonderful editor, um, and they they just knocked it out of the park. They just put together this gorgeous book that is so entertaining, and you know um, we really just got to do all this really fun research to put it together. And you can read about things like monkey testicle transplants, <laughs> and you know. Um, holes in your head and eating all sorts of really weird stuff like snake oil. Like we just talk about all that stuff. Just it's a blast. And it's, um, it, it's sort of the book that keeps on, on, on giving because like the, the book is, is I think it's an, and it's like sixth printing now or something like that. And it's, people are still finding it today and they're just like, I love this book. It's so funny. It's amazing. <laughs> well, Lydia, I wanted to um, mention that this article on your website that, um, where you are listed as ten, one of 10 physicians who also write crime fiction, along with Sir mm-hmm. Arthur Conan Doyle, Michael Crichton, <laughs> Robin Cook. So you're in, you're in oh some pretty uh, distinguished company there. I, I remember when that list came out and I was like, you're really going to put me on this list? Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. So it feels pretty awesome to be on that list. Michael Crichton, I read him very early on. I remember reading the Andromeda Strain, I think before I was in medical school. And I remember thinking like, he wrote this in medical school. Like, this guy's amazing. Like, to be a doctor and a writer, like, God, who, and who'd have thunk that I would actually do it myself? Like, I am just so, so tickled and honored to be able to have two jobs at once to be able to write 
um, and also be a doctor at the same time. It's been, you know, quite, quite a journey. Did you, how did you decide you wanted to start writing? Um, I started, I, I kind of always wanted to do it a little bit, but I wasn't real serious about it because I thought I'm not really great at writing. I was really good at science and I, I'd like to help people. And it just made a lot of sense for me to go into medicine. Um, but I would always try to write something here and there. Like I would like, you know, try to write a short story for a contest. I would not win. And, um, when I was in, um, once I had finished medical school and my training and I was an attending physician at Bellevue, um, I started, I wrote an essay in the middle of the night about taking care of a patient and I submitted it to one of the medical journals that has like a humanities section and it got accepted. And I was like, Oh my God, I'm a published writer. I actually published an essay that got <laughs> like, it's out there. And I thought this is fantastic. And I kind of got a little bit of the bug, but then I wrote more essays and none of them got published. And I, I moved to Omaha. I had another kid and, but there was a little part of me that was like, Oh, this would be really cool. But I don't know. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm not a writer. And, Maybe not that good. Maybe this was just a one-off, this essay. And I ended up joining a workshop that paired physicians with local poets and writers. And I I remember thinking, like, I don't know what I'm doing. Everybody's going to laugh at me. Everybody's going to laugh at me. They're going to say I'm so bad. Or they're going to be like, why are you in this workshop? You need to go and take some classes in poetry. Like, go take some classes and in like writing fiction because you don't know what you're doing. And what happened was people were just so welcoming and they, and, you know, I workshopped an essay that ended up getting published in JAMA, which is this really, really fantastic medical journal. And I started writing poetry and I started getting some of my poetry accepted. And I was like, wow, I'm actually kind of doing this. (laughs) And it gave me just enough, like just enough confidence that like about a year or two into it, I was like, you know what? I was reading a ton of young adult fiction at the time, because as you know, it's so fun. And I was really enjoying myself. And I thought I, I had written, I'd read somewhere that um, Stephanie Meyer, who wrote the Twilight series, she was like a stay at home mom and that she just like had a dream about a sparkly vampire and just woke up one day and was like, I'm just going to write the story about this vampire. And she sent it off to an agent and the agent signed her and then she got a publishing contract and so when I read that I was like wait a second wait a second she didn't like go back to school like she didn't go and get an MFA like a a master's in fine arts like she didn't like I I was just it's so it occurred to me that there was no gatekeeper preventing me from doing what I thought was impossible which was writing a book and I thought, oh, okay, I'll, I'm just going to try. And so I, that's exactly what I did. I was like, all right, I'm just going to try to write a novel. And I read online as hard as I could about, like, how to write a novel, how to create characters, how to write a plot, like, how to structure your plot. Everything out there is like, was online. And um, I had people reading my stuff and giving me feedback, and I was very eager to learn because I, again, was coming from a place of, like, I don't know what the heck I'm doing like, teach me. Like, if you think I'm doing something <laughs> wrong, let me know because I want to get better. And I was so eager to improve my craft that I was learning as hard as I can. And did that first and novel so, get published? No, it did not. And it didn't. did your second novel get published? No, it didn't. <laughs> <laughs> and was and number three the charm? <laughs> yes, number three was the charm. So number three was my first novel that was published. That was Control. And the, the interesting thing is that every step of the way, I kept thinking like, oh, I'll just give up after, I'll give it a couple months and then I'll give up, you know. But what, what kept happening was I, I would get feedback from like agents and they would be like, hey, this book is pretty good, but it's not for me. And for the second novel, it actually went so far as like, I was really close to getting signed by a UK literary agent who loved the book. But the agent was like, the other people in my agency aren't as confident as I am. And so I I can't sign you. So I was sort of like, oh, if I can get this close, I'm clearly not that bad of a writer. Like, I'm clearly (laughs) doing something, right? Right. And so the next book was like, "Um, you know what? I'm going to do science fiction. And I had a ton of fun with it. And that was the one that I got my agent, who's still my agent today. We were picked up by um, Penguin. Well, at the time it was Penguin. And wow. Penguin Random House. But, well, um, well we're, yeah. Lydia, we're very glad that you kept going. The Half-Life of Ruby Fielding was a great read. And we are unfortunately out of time. 
so much for having me. I really had fun talking to you guys. I really appreciate it. And Caroline, do you have some closing words for us? You never know what is in your future. So maybe it's even writing a book. (laughs) Well, thank you. And see you all next week on Writer's Voices.